Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Rabina podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. We pray that this message is a blessing. One of the things we've loved is part of this church is, is to develop long-term missional partnerships. We don't really love the idea of short-term missionary trips where we kind of go and bungee jump in and out of communities. We partner with long-term communities that we've been visiting Cambodia with Joe and Stu for many years now. And this will be really the first time since uh, COVID that we've taken a big team across. We've had a bunch of our missions team going across many times since. So it's exciting. It's a good time to be back. Friends, for those of you who have not met yet, my name is Michael. I'm excited to be starting our next series, which is The Paradox, A Different Way to Live. I don't know about you, but in our world, we are often taught different ways and different priorities that we are called to have in and around us at every day. And we realise that the life of Jesus calls for a different way, a better way, a way that may seem paradoxical at times, but a way that will lead to life. And I'm excited to preach it today. I haven't preached in a little while. God was so faithful in our 8am service, um, but we all know that we were warming up for the 10am and online. Amen. Yeah, I wouldn't tell the 8am that, especially not with that kind of level of energy. Amen back. Let's try again. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, would you lean with, let's just ask God to move in this place today. Gracious God, we, we come before you and just so thankful you are here. That whether we're online or in the room, you want to meet with us more than we even want to meet with you. I thank you, God, you love us. Holy Spirit, what do you want to say today? What are you whispering that we need to listen to? And Lord God, in all things, I thank you that your word never returns void. Less of me, more of you. And the pumped up 10 a.m. service said, hey man, come on, we're getting there. You wait. By the end, we'll be be cheering because I'll have finished. (sighs) Have you ever missed the point? Have you ever missed the point in life? Has there been a moment where you're like, I just don't think I get this the way everybody else seems to? I think I've had a couple of those moments. I just started my son in soccer. We we have Friday family day. We try to spend most of the day um, on family day. And then we finish the night with a fire. But then Saturday morning, Archer knows it's soccer morning. He gets on his soccer kit, heads to Rabina State. And we have a great time playing soccer together. And it becomes clear to me that I'm blessed because my son has the majority of his mother's genes and not mine because he's good at sport. I was not good at sport. I remember when my father put me into soccer as a child. Maybe it's because he was hoping I would join Manchester United and, and maybe be the provider for the family. I'm not quite sure. But those dreams were soon dashed because I did not understand the point of soccer or for those cultured in the room, football, um, which really is semantics at the end of the day. But there's this moment where I didn't understand the point of the game. 22 people playing for a length of time that one team would score one goal for the whole game and everyone would be like, that was amazing. I'm like, that was boring. The whole thing, right? Sorry not to offend anybody in the room, but this is how I felt as a young man. So they put me on the field and I, you know, I kind of liked it at first. I had a bunch of mates and we were hanging out, but everyone got into their position and they got really serious. And I'm out here on the midfield, uh, on the wing. And, um, and I, I got to be honest, I got really bored because you know, the ball didn't come to me all the time. And every time I went to run to where the ball was, someone would be like, get back in position, Michael. I'm like, okay. So I'd stand in position. And, and eventually I got so bored that I just sat down. 
And then I looked around me and I just saw like there were some ants there and I'm like, oh, I might kill some ants while we're here, you know. And someone say, Michael, the ball. And I'm like, yes, there is a ball in the field. Zoom, the ball would come straight past me. I'm like, well, I mean, I was killing ants. What were you all doing? Like, you know, so like, oh my gosh, let's put Michael in defence. So they put me in defence. Same thing happened. I laid down and stared at the clouds. So it was a great moment to cloud gaze. And then so he's like, what if we put Michael in the goals? True story. What if we put Michael in the goal and we just made sure the ball didn't get to him? Now I know what you're thinking. Why don't you just put Michael on the bench? Not enough players. We had to play. So we didn't have any subs. So he here I am. I'm like, you know, I got to put on like a really colourful shirt. I'm like, this is cool. Everyone can see me. This is fun. And I got to stand in the goals with these super grippy gloves. And I'm like, come on, I am so ready, excited for this. If I thought being in the midfield was boring, being in the goals is the worst thing at all. Because you're standing there and everyone else is having fun. And I'm down the back. I'm like, guys, someone passed to me. And no one passes to the goalie, especially not when they're five-year-old and uncoordinated, as you saw earlier today. And so there's this moment where I'm really bored and I think, well, I'm not going to lay down because that got me into trouble last time. So I turned around and I saw behind me this beautiful net and I thought, I could climb this net. So I thought I'd have a go. So I wound one arm into the net and I start swinging on one arm. I'm like, it's not bad. Seems to be pretty sturdy. Wound the other arm in, start swinging on that arm. I'm like, what if I put both my legs in as well? So I did. So here I am down there and I got both my legs in. I just start swinging backwards and forth. Now just picture this, right? My dad's hopes of me being like, you know, Manchester United. He's scanning across the field as the game's playing. Looks down and here's his son. Woo! Like, you know, what, what a dream. And then it happens, right? I'm here sw- tangled in the nets and I hear it. Michael, the ball! I'm like, oh no. Oh no. I look behind me and sure enough, there is this five-year-old testosterone thriving human being who had too much energy for a five-year-old. He's like breathing down the field with the ball coming straight for me. He's like, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. Here's me. And I'm thinking, oh, I'll just get out of the net only to realise I'm now tangled and caught in the net. And so there's only one thing that I could do. And that was to act like I'd just been an electrocuted fish in a net. And so I'm there and I'm like shaking like this in the net. My dad's like, get out out of the net. My team's like, get out of the net. The other team's like, stay in the net. The ball gets kicked. Everything got slow-mo. Everyone's like, yes. I'm like, no. Goes into the net. Like, this is the dumbest game in the world. And dad's like, oh, do you want a Happy Meal? I'm like, yeah, this is the best idea ever. Let's go get a Happy Meal. I didn't understand the point of soccer, right? And so to this day, I, I stopped playing soccer in school. If you ask any of my teachers, they would tell you I was not good at sport in school because I just, it just didn't vibe for me for some reason. But here's what I worked out. When you don't understand the point of something, you can often struggle to enjoy it. You can often struggle to find meaning behind it. You can often struggle to find purpose and passion in it. And that was me with soccer, right? That might be you when you were in school in maths or Shakespeare. Or here's my, here's my thought. I wonder if that's what the issue with many of us and church and faith and dare I say Jesus. We've got the teenagers in the room today. You know, I few Sundays on school holidays. I reckon there are teenagers in the room today who are only here because mum and dad said they had to be. And they're just waiting. I can't wait till I can sleep in on Sunday mornings. Amen, teens? They're here. I know they're here. They just didn't want to. They want to get food on the way home. Step. There's this moment where we've got to recognise that maybe sometimes, friends, our faith is boring. Not because faith is boring, but because we've missed the point. When you actually read the teachings of Jesus, they're not boring things. 
The teachings of Jesus are challenging. They're revolutionary. They're diverse. But they also create a paradox for us that is so different from anything this world says. What does Jesus say? You want to live? You must die. You want to be first? You must be last. You want to be great? You must be the least. Hey, you got some people you hate? You got some enemies in your world? Pray for them. None of that sounds boring. Friends, I don't think there's such things. Christianity is not boring. I think Christians are boring because we fail to listen to the words of Jesus. So over this series, we're going to actually say, Jesus, we want to listen to what you're saying carefully. Teach us what it means to live in the upside down kingdom of God in a way which sees that we live differently. And for those who have parents who have kids in the room right now, they're looking at us to see, is this worth following for the rest of my life? And to do that, we're going to go to a verse that actually Dylan preached on last week. Now, we actually form a series as a family pastors. We, we get together all of the locations and we form our series together. And so we, we choose the Scriptures long before time. And so this is the Scripture that landed on today. Just so happened that Dylan also preached on it last week as well. But I think there's more for us um, that God wants to teach. And I've, if you've heard me preach in this church for the last five years, 10 years, you will have heard me talk about this Scripture. It's possibly my favourite Scripture to preach. Why? because it was the Scripture which actually led me to want to be a pastor. It was the Scripture that actually stirred my heart for the local church and to follow Jesus with the rest of my life. And I'd love you to turn with me if you have your Bibles, which I pray, I hope you have a copy of a Bible on a phone. At least make it look like you're going to grab a phone. Some of you haven't moved. Some of you still aren't grabbing anything, at least pretend. Um, and pull it out and open up to the Word of God with me um, so we can follow along together. Um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, we read this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, He asked, who do you say I am? Simon answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now Dylan preached beautifully last week. This sermon is in no way the like, let me make up for Dylan's preaching last week. He said nothing wrong. It was beautiful. It's just, this is where the Scriptures landed for us this week as well. But I think there's a lot for us here today. Because to understand what's happening in this text, it's actually quite dense. It starts off by telling us that Jesus is with His disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now in the Gospels, whenever we hear a location, there are reasons for us hearing that specificity. It's there for two reasons that we might know Caesarea Philippi was a historical place in a place in a time that actually happened and existed. But secondly, there's a reason why it's mentioned. So Caesarea Philippi, just to give you a bit of background, was a city that used to be known as Barnabas. But Barnabas became Caesarea Philippi under Roman rule. And it was named that firstly because of Caesar Augustus, who was the ruler of the Roman Empire. And so often if people wanted to make Caesar happy, they would name towns after him. But there was already a Caesarea. So the governor or the king of the area, Philip, actually attached his name to the end of Caesar's to kind of say, oh, well, this is the Caesarea that Philip gets to oversee on behalf of Caesar. Why would he do that? Ultimately, this was just a soft propaganda campaign for Philip to kind of say, me and Caesar, we're tight. He likes me, and so you've got to do what I say. 
This is what Jesus and His disciples walk into. But more than that, Caesarea Philippi was a place which was known for its temple worship. And it was positioned at the base of a rocky mountain, as you can see on the screen behind me. At the base of the rocky mountain, there were these temples, this massive rock base, and there were these temples down the bottom. And there were many temples there. There was a temple to the God known as Pan. And and the temple was for the worship of Pan and the dancing goats. Sounds like a a weird temple. Temple of Zeus. There was the temple of Nemesis. There was the temple of the sacred goats. The the Philippians, those guys really seem to have a thing for goats. Temple of Augustus. Now this is significant. One of these temples was a temple that worshipped Caesar Augustus. Why? Because Caesar Augustus came to power through a really devious means. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar gets killed um, in, in a civil war and Caesar Augustus is, and, and Augustus's claim to power came through him making everyone believe that his father, Julius Caesar, posthumously was actually divine. And so he got the whole Roman Empire to agree that Julius Caesar, who did all these amazing things, was actually divine, which meant that if he was the son of Caesar, he was the living son of God. So here you have a temple. Wherever Caesar subjugated a town, he would put a temple to the emperor right in the middle of it and they would worship him as the living son of God. Now listen to the conversation again. Jesus and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi in the shadow of the temples of the gods, in the shadow of the dictator who wipes out civilizations at a whim. And he says to them, hey, so who do you guys say I am? In fact, he starts differently, doesn't he? He says, who do other people say I am? They say, oh, John the Baptist, uh, Jeremiah, some say Elijah. Now this is good because they're putting Jesus equal with some of Israel's heroes. Like Jesus, you're up there, man. But he says, okay, let me get more specific. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And friends, I've preached this before and I'll preach it again. But you need to know this. There is no more significant question you can answer with your life than this. Who do you say Jesus is? This question is not not one of opinion. It is not one of what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. There is a real person proven by non-Christian and Christian historians who is known as Jesus of Nazareth. Who do you say He is? Either this side or the next side of eternity, we will all be held accountable for how we answer that question. And in the shadow of the temple of Caesar Augustus, known as the Son of the living God, Jesus looks at His disciples and says, so who do you say I am? Do you feel the weight of that question now? And Peter in a moment looks Jesus in the eye and what does he say? You're the Messiah. You're the living Son of God. In a moment, he's committed insurrection. He's declared war. Jesus has been declared the real Son of God in the shadow of the temple of the greatest ruler of His age. This wasn't just a nice theological lesson, friends. This was Jesus saying, the Roman Empire will not stand. It will not stand. And in our day and age, we are surrounded by so many opinions about who Jesus is. We're surrounded by so many thoughts about who Jesus is. People try to soften His character, try and soften what it is. And there might be some people in this room today who are wondering, who is Jesus? 
And the truth is, friends, is that Jesus is either who He claimed to be or He is a crazy person. When I tell you that there was a Roman emperor who forced his way to rule over nations with military might and genocide and then made everyone claim him to be the living son of God with no more proof than the might of his army. What do you start to think? You start to go, that guy's, that guy's loony. And Jesus has to be handled the same way. Either Jesus was who he said he was or he's a lunatic. C.S. Lewis would say it like this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And do you want to know how Jesus has proved that he's the living Son of God? Not even the greatest, mightiest army in this world could hold him down. Death could not stop him. In fact, a quote attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte, um, which some say it may not have been him, but he says this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded His empire upon love and at this hour, millions of men and women would still die for Him. Friends, the man who stood in the shadow of a temple with 12 guys, one who was a tax collector, another was a zealot or a terrorist, a bunch of them were fishermen. None of them really liked each other, looked them in the eye and goes, guys, what do you think? Who do you think I am? No army, no force, no political clout. And Peter says a word that would change the course of history. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let me ask you this question today. Who do you say Jesus is? He's either Lord of all or He's nothing at all, friends. The response is revelation. Peter, Jesus goes on and He says this to Peter. He says, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you. This is so critical. By flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Just for a moment, just a sidebar, just for a second. Sometimes we think it is the preacher's responsibility to explain and justify and make it clear why Jesus is who He said He was. What Jesus says here is not, hey, Simon Peter, you've seen all the evidence, you've heard all the arguments, and and here's the thing, you've made your own decision who I am. That's not what Jesus says. He says, this couldn't have been revealed to you by flesh and blood. This could only have been revealed to you by heaven, which means two things. The pressure's off me today. And the pressure's off you. Some of you in your life, you're trying to convince someone you love that Jesus is who He said He is. Friends, that's not on us. Only God can reveal who He is. We just set up dates between people to meet Him. We're just creating opportunities of obedience for us to get in the way and to say, hey God, you're calling me out to say something right now, to be in the right place right now. It is not me who convinces people of who Jesus is. Only God can do that. And I say that to you today, if you're here and you're wondering, I wish I knew who Jesus was. Friends, this sermon is not the way that you will find that out. Only the Good Shepherd can reveal that. In answer to a simple prayer, good shepherd, come find me. 
and he will. But as Peter declares this, Jesus goes on to congratulate him. He doesn't just say, Simon, you've done a great thing that's been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. He goes on, he says, and I tell you, you're no longer Simon, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Everyone say church. It says, and I will build my church on this rock. But And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the first time in the Bible that the word church is used. The first time. So there is something significant happening here. When I preach this to young people, when I've talked about this verse to youth, I say Jesus is vision casting in this moment. He's standing before them and He's saying, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. He's, he's hoping to boil the blood in a good way. But when He says that word church, what do you think He means? I grew up in the church, some of you did. And I grew up in a church that, if I'm honest, um, I didn't really love. Maybe you've grown up in a church similar, or maybe you've been a part of churches where you've not always loved them. And I remember the moment in my life when I decided that I wanted to be a pastor. I was 15 years old. I read a book called Courageous Leadership. And the first chapter of the book was called this, The Church is the Hope of the World. And in that chapter, I read a chapter where it talked about the story that the day after September 11 in 2001, churches across America were filled because people needed hope. And he went story after story about how the church was the hope of the world. And I realised there's something wrong. Because I rocked up to our church on Sunday where we would sing for three hours, have a half hour tithes and offerings message. And then sometimes the pastor would preach from the Word or whatever indigestion had like led him to talk about that day. And there was this moment, I was like, I'm not, that was probably disrespectful. But, and there was this moment where, where, where we were, I was like, I don't know, this is the hope of the world? Here's two things I'd say. I don't believe the church is the hope of the world. I believe that the church carries the hope of the world. The hope of the world is Jesus. But here's the second thing. Jesus deserves a beautiful bride. And I grew up in a church where I just didn't see it. I became disenchanted with it. And I think it's because we've misunderstood what Jesus is saying. When he says this word church, you know that word church is actually originated from the German word kirch or like an old German word, an ancient tribal word in Germany for kirch. And what that kirch word meant was a temple for gods. It was what they used to describe for buildings where people would come to worship gods. And we're like, well, that's what a church is. Yes, unfortunately, that we have made this about buildings where people come to, to do something with God. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. We've domesticated faith. We've domesticated what Jesus says here. The word Jesus uses, and many of you know this already, is the word ecclesia. And the ecclesia has nothing to do with bricks and mortar, nothing to do with an order of service, and nothing to do with three songs, a tithes and offerings, message and a sermon. The word ecclesia is literally this, a called out people. And it's not even a Christian word. It's a word that in the ancient world, they used to give to people who love to get together for something greater than themselves. They're like, hey, I'm really concerned about how fast people are driving chariots along the Appian Way in ancient Rome. They're like, let's get a group of us together and let's do something about it. We'll be in Ecclesia. So they get together, go protest, they do a movement. It's, it's like what they would form is a revolution. It wasn't about a building, it wasn't about a service. It was a people called out for something greater. And what we've done is we've made church boring and we tell our kids come to church and we wonder why they groan. Who would want to be a part of this for the rest of their lives? This is all this is. We are called friends to be an ecclesia, 
that we are called to stand against darkness wherever it shows its face. We are called for something greater. We are called to be a revolution. We are an ecclesia in the way of like Wilbur Wilberforce who called out the ecclesia to stand against slavery and abolished it. That's what it looks like. God is calling us to that again today. When Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, He didn't mean a Sunday service. So what on earth are we doing here? Here's the truth, friends. Jesus never tells us to go to church, ever in the Bible. Some of you are like, could have told me that an hour ago because I wouldn't be here. So why are we here? Because we're huddling. Because this is important. What we're doing now is important for what the Ecclesia is called to do. Friends, you're not called to go to church, you're called to be the church. What does it mean to be the Ecclesia of God? Have you ever watched an NFL match? They're out there, they're playing the game. I'm jealous watching people do something I'll never be able to do. And, uh, and there's a moment when they, they, they pause the game of play and they huddle. And they come together and the quarterback sits there and goes, all right, guys, now, Drop the pass. We need to reform it together. John, love what you were doing there. Tighten that up. We're now going to do the great Abraham Lincoln's grandmother's play. Everyone know what that is? Cool. You all know your position. Are you okay? You need some time out. Let's sub him off for somebody else. All right, let's all get together. Encourage each other. Three, two, one, break. What do they do? They then get back amongst the game. That's what we do. And we've forgotten that. When we get together on Sundays, you're not meant to just warm a seat. We gather together. We come in and we're like, Andrew, man, I love the testimony you brought about the person you talked to about Jesus this week. I love that. How you doing? You doing okay? Hey, Jill, I know your mother's not doing well. She's gone through cancer. Can we pray for you? This is difficult right now. I love that. Hey, let's worship God together. Let's focus our attention on Him. Let's sing. Now we're going to listen to the Word preached faithfully because tomorrow darkness is out there. We've got to break and go make it shake. Amen. Cool. Three, two, one, break. That's what we do. We're like, yeah, great sermon. Man, faith is boring. I don't think faith is the problem. We forgot we're playing a game. Maybe not a game. We forgot we're at war. We forgot that there is darkness out there that needs an ecclesia to stand against it every day. Friends, here's the beauty of the being an ecclesia of God. Right now, you are the ecclesia. You are God's master plan of pushing back darkness. If there is a teacher in this room, if there is a mother in this room, a doctor, a lawyer, a politician, you are God's ecclesia. And upon this rock of Jesus Christ as the confession of this church, not even the gates of Haiti will shake what we are gonna do against the kingdom of darkness. But here's the problem. We forget this because we think the most important person that can't be in a church is the pastor. The pastor is not the most important person, amen? That was too fast, too quick, slow it down. We are on mission. We gather Sundays because the world needs the church on Monday. And when we forget it, we make this boring and teenagers don't want to come to church because they're not called to come, they're called to be. That's who we are. And what does Jesus say? And upon this rock I will build my ecclesia and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We think about the gates of Hades and we think that the gates of Hades is like this place, this hell, where suddenly there's these gates and Lucifer's wearing spandex with a pitchfork behind it being, well, I'm coming for you. It's actually not that at all. If you, if you go back to the photo, if you can, Julie, of the ancient time, one of these temples was actually the Temple of Pan. And the Temple of Pan, remember, Jesus is standing in front of this rock and the Temple of Pan is there. And underneath the Temple of Pan, it has been erected over a deep bottomless chasm. 
Now, deep bottomless chasm was a place where they would come and they would throw their sacrifices to appease God, the God Pan that He wouldn't cause panic, which is where we get the word panic amongst their livestock. Why would they do that at that chasm? Because that chasm was known in the ancient world as the gates of Hades. How intentional is Christ? He stands in the shadow of Caesar Augustus's temple, in the shadow of the temple of Pan. And he says this, Upon this rock, I, the living Son of God, will build my ecclesia. And none of the things that this world believes can save it. None of the things, these darknesses that this world is following, none of the spiritual realities you think surround us will be able to stand against what I am going to do. I will build my ecclesia. It's beautiful. But then something happens. And we find that there's something that doesn't stop the expansion of God's kingdom, but does threaten to cause it to stumble. The story goes on and Peter, Jesus comes along and Jesus starts to tell the disciples the next part of his plan. He says this, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is the moment where Jesus goes, I want to build my ecclesia, but my ecclesia needs to be free of the thing which sent them into darkness in the first place. And so Jesus tells them, I'm going to go die a death that only I can die that you might be free and forgiven of sin. I'm going to go to the very person I told you was a poached egg, is Caesar Augustus. I'm going to allow his system of execution, crucifixion, to kill me. Now, there were many messiahs back then There are many of them, people who rose up in Jewish history who said, I am the one sent by God. And all of them died. All of them died. But Jesus was the only one who said that death was part of his plan. And Peter hears this. He comes along and he says, no, 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 Jesus. (laughs) Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. I love Jesus and Peter's confidence here. It's like that moment when the, like, the front row kid gets one answer right in class and then he starts to teach the teacher the rest of the lesson. It's like this moment where Peter's like, whoa, 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 Jesus, ixnay on the eth day stuff. Let's just chill. <laughs> no one thought we were going to go die. We love the Caesar Augustus coming down and pan stuff. But this thing about you dying, no one's going to want to follow that. So let's just chill on that, far, on that part. What's Peter worried about? Himself. He doesn't want to follow someone that's going to die. He wants to follow someone that's going to be victorious. It's going to live. And Jesus turns to Peter in a moment. He offers him the harshest rebuke in the Bible. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In a matter of verses, Jesus goes from telling Peter, hey, you are a rock, to now, hey, Get behind me, Satan. It would be okay if Peter needed some counselling after this interaction with Jesus. What's Jesus actually saying? He said, Peter, you've had two revelations. One was from the kingdom of heaven. It's who I am. And one was from the kingdom of darkness. And here's what the kingdom of darkness is saying, Peter. It's all about you. It's all about comfort. But something God revealed to me this week I've never seen before. What does He say? Get behind me, Satan. Hear these next words. He says this to Peter. You are a stumbling block to me. The living Son of God says to Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. He's just said, I'm going to build my church and nothing's going to stop it. Then he turns to Peter. Peter says one thing and Jesus is like, Peter, you've got to know what you've just said. Man, it's a trap for me. What's the trap? 
you were prioritising human concerns above God's concerns. Friends, nothing can stop the Kingdom of God, but there are things in our world which can cause the Kingdom of God in our life to stumble, who we are called to be to stumble. It's quite frankly this, when human concerns trump God's concerns. Now, when I talk about human concerns, you might be like, oh, you're providing for my family or like caring for my, my parents or, or no, 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 no. Peter's concern in this moment wasn't the, the, the stuff that actually is on God's heart, being a good mother or father or, or contributing to society. Peter's concern is running away from discomfort. Peter's concern is self-protection, self-image. Peter's concern is being in control. And Jesus is saying, that's your concerns, Peter. Let me tell you my concerns. Redemption of the world. Care for the last, the lost and the least. Let me tell you my concerns, Peter. I want you to be free. Friends, I wanna finish with this thought today. I think some of us in our lives right now are bored with faith because we're more preoccupied with God answering our concerns than asking God for our heart to align with His. J.I. Packer says it like this, it needs to be said loud and clear that in the Kingdom of God, there ain't no comfort zone and there never will be. We are called to be a people who are out on the edge of darkness, beating it back until it bleeds the light of the love of God. And I've got to tell you this right now, it's not going to be easy. But here's what I know. Imagine if Jesus had listened to Peter. Imagine if Jesus had been like, ah, you're right, Peter, this seems a bit drastic. Why don't we do your way? We'd still be in our sin. Peter would still be nothing more than a doubter. You and I would not be here today. Thank God Jesus stood the path. And friends, there are moments in your life where you're focused on your concerns, thinking you know better than what God does, but God's concerns will end up better than you could ever possibly imagine. The role of the disciples to submit our will, say, God, your concern first. What's on your heart today? There are people in your workplace right now who need you to notice them. They're worried. They're scared. They need someone to pray. There's a family member right now that just needs time, just needs a coffee. There's someone in your world that thinks that, that thinks no one can see them and God's longing to lay on your heart. He's concerned for His world. Do you have the time? Do you have the margin? Do you have the ability to pause and stop? God, what do you need me to be concerned about today? Because this is the stumbling block of the forwarding of the Kingdom of God in your life when we prioritise our concerns upon that of God. The living Son of God looks at us today. He says, I am going to build my ecclesia and the gates of darkness won't prevail. But I need you to put my concerns first and you'll see it'll work out better. What are you concerned about today? Let me pray. Gracious God, we just wait on you now. Holy Spirit, would you just speak? Whether we're online or in the room, what are you saying? We just wait on you now.
God, I just pray that right now, someone in this room would receive a revelation that You are the living Son of God. Come to take away their sins and bring them new life. That right now online, someone receives a revelation, You are the living Son of God. God, guys, I just feel to ask you a really simple question today and just ask for a simple response. If you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ as the living Son of God for the first time, would you raise your hand wherever you are? Thank you for your hand. I see it. You can just keep your hand raised for a moment longer. I'm going to pray for you. It's awesome. Thank you, Jesus. If you're online, there'll be a way to respond. All right, we're just going to pray. Can we all pray this prayer together? Dear Jesus, guys, there's someone in this room right now responding for the first time. Let's pray it with them loud. Dear Jesus, I choose to trust You. Show me who You are, the living Son of God. Forgive me of my sin. Bring me new life and teach me to follow You. In Jesus' Name. Amen. Father, we pray for anyone that made that decision for the first time. Would you just envelop them with your love and your goodness? May they know you are here, you are present, and you are radically for them and with them. Friends across this room, wherever you are, would you stand to your feet as well? If you're in this room, would you stand to your feet? If you're online, would you make yourself ready to worship with us? I'm just going to pray for us. Got to ask the section leaders if you can come to the front of your section. The section leaders can just come to the front of their section. And just for the first song, just for the first song, the section leader is going to stand there. Then after that, they might just stand in the front row with us. But the section leader is going to come and stand and face the, face, the, uh, face the congregation. I just want to ask, are you struggling to put God's concerns first? And if that's the case, we'd love to pray for you. Why don't you come? We just had a beautiful time of prayer at the end of the first service. People come forward just being prayed for, just saying, God, we just want to reprioritize these things. If you're here today and you want to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you want to come be prayed for, pray. I sense there may be some people here who need healing. If you would love to be healed today or love prayer for healing, we'd love to pray with you. These section leaders down the front of every section would love to just stand and pray. But for all of us, I want of you to stretch out your hands with me and I pray before we worship together. Let's pray together. Gracious God, right now, I pray new life would be more than bricks and mortar. We'd be more than a building and a worship service. Father, we would be a called out people who declare the rock of this truth that You are the living Son of God. And we put Your concerns first. We repent as a church, as an ecclesia, for when we have prioritised ourselves, when we have put ourselves first. Forgive us, Lord and deliver us into freedom. Be the centre of it all, Lord Jesus. Friends, just stay in this posture of worship with me. If you're online, there'll be people making ready to pray for you. If you're in the room, come forward now and receive prayer as you feel led. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.